www.kkbb.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. As always, it's a privilege to be here. And if you have a particular question or issue that you're facing in your personal life that you would like to dialogue with us about from the Holy Scripture, feel free to call us. The number again locally is 525-1859, 525-1859, toll free at 877-WAGP980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at net. When you call, you can remain anonymous. You can go on the air live. You can have your question Uh, simply dictated to one of our people, and we'll be happy to receive it. And by God's grace, we'll do our very best to try to respond to questions that you may have this morning. Rick, as always, it's good to be here this morning. It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, the lines are just lighting up. I see uh, two lines are already going, so uh, we'll give a second there to see if uh, anybody is brave enough to go live. And uh, in the meantime, we'll go ahead and bring up some questions that have been uh, submitted to us over the last week. I guess they're all going to dictate their questions. So let's go to uh, this one that came in. Timothy from Beaufort writes, I'm a new believer and was confronted with a question that I'm not sure how to answer. The question stated, how can I say that Christ was in the grave for three days if he was buried on a Friday and raised on that Sunday? It would then appear to some that he was in the grave two nights and one day. My answer was that a Jewish day began at sundown, So Friday would count as a day, and Saturday would count as a day, and then Sunday would be the third. Is this the correct explanation, or am I misleading? It's a great question. No, I think you're you're right on target. Now, not everyone, of course, would agree with you, um, but I I certainly would. And this whole issue comes up in Matthew 12. Uh, If you remember, um, the Lord had confronted some Pharisees who— accused him of of being an evil, evil person. He had done a triple miracle of sorts, and they said, well, you did the miracle not by your own power or God's power, but by the devil's power. And uh, they were committing what Jesus described as an unpardonable sin. And so he, after he went through and reasoned with them the folly of their reason, it didn't even make sense. He said, an evil and an adulterous generation craves for a sign. Yet no sign shall be given it, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, some have argued for a Wednesday. Some have argued for a Thursday crucifixion. And they appeal to this passage. They say, well, it has to be three days and three nights. And if indeed Jesus died on Friday... 
and uh, Friday night was in the grave. That would be one night, and then Saturday night would be a second night, and then early Sunday morning they would say, well, it doesn't, doesn't sink. So it can't be um, that he died on Friday. That's, that's one argument. But I think it fails to acknowledge the truth that is seen in God's Word that the expression three days, three nights is what we call a Hebraism. We, we have a lot of little English idioms in our own language that we use, and they're not always to be taken literally, but they teach a basic truth. So, for instance, um, the, the classic example on this would be like from the book of Esther. Let me just turn there real fast in my Bible. Um, in Esther chapter 4, um, and let's see if you will look at verse... Uh, 16, Esther 4, 16. Uh, Esther told them to go to Mordecai and to say, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I am I, and by the way, that's in the, in the Septuagint, the way it's phrased is identically to the way it's found in the Greek New Testament. So the equivalent expression is clear, not just from Hebrew, but even in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so she says, fast three days, three nights, and I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. And then we read in chapter five and verse one, now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robe and she goes into the inner court. So she uses the Hebraism three days and three nights And then on the third day, she goes in and sees the king. There's another example. I think it's in 1 Samuel 30, but let me just check here real fast. 1 Samuel uh, 30. Yeah, here it is. Um, If you remember, David is battling with the Amalekites. And in chapter 30 and verse 11, it says, and they found an Egyptian in the field and, and brought him to David and gave him bread and he ate and they provided him water to drink and they gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins and he ate. Then his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. There is the same Hebraism, three days, three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. And so three days ago, three days, three nights, they're equivalent expressions. So in a Jewish mind, remember, a day starts at sundown. So Jesus did indeed die on Friday. In fact, uh, he died on Passover that year. He died at three o'clock in the afternoon when he gave up his spirit. Uh, the crucifixion, if you remember, lasted six hours, began at nine in the morning, at noontime, in the middle of it, when the sun is supposed to be high and bright in the sky, it became like night. And then at three in the afternoon, he died. The precise time when the priests would be in the temple slitting the throats of uh, the Passover lambs, the Lamb of God died. So he dies on Friday before sundown. That's day one. Remember, a Jewish day goes from sundown to sundown. And so today, if you you know, know Jewish families here in the States or in other countries, if you're in Israel, the Sabbath begins Friday and it goes till Friday the next day. So day two, he's in the grave from Friday night until uh, Saturday evening. 
and then day three, a new day starts on the third day. And again, what's really interesting here is in Esther, the three-day, three-night expression is used. But not only that, then it says, and it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court. So that's the same expression you have the Apostle Paul using in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and on the third day, he was raised again from the dead. So Jesus is giving the Jewish people here a sign, and and I think we can get really caught up sometimes in the logistics of timing here and miss the message that he's trying to do. He's saying, listen, um, uh, the only sign you'll receive is the sign of, of Jonah, and then he goes on to say, um, and behold, some, something greater than Jonah is here. And then he goes on and he uh, talks about the queen of the south. If you remember her from the Old Testament, this woman who came to uh, Solomon to learn of his wisdoms, be, wisdom because she had heard about it all over. She said his wisdom was, wisdom was known to the end of the earth. And then Jesus said, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus is greater than Jonah in his person, in his obedience, and in his love. Not to mention the fact that Jonah didn't literally die. He was swallowed by a great fish, preserved by God uh, during that uh, little boat ride where God brought him to where he wanted to be, and then he was brought out. Well, Jesus literally died, and, and it all took place under his own power and authority. Because he said, I have uh, power to give my life to lay it down, and I have power to take it back up again. And again, Solomon, though in many ways the wisest man who ever lived, as God deems him in the Old Testament, Jesus is still, as the God-man, greater than Solomon in his wisdom and his wealth and in his works. So you're on the right track. I think your answer is really good. And keep searching the scriptures as a new Christian. Appreciate it. Five two five one eight five nine is the phone number, toll free. If you're out of state at eight seven seven W A G P nine eighty. Let's go to the next question, Rick. All right, our first live caller this morning dictated and they'd like to know if those who have heard and rejected the gospel will have another chance during the tribulation. It's a good question. It's one that has often come up over the years on the Bible line? And the simple answer is no. Uh, Again, though, sometimes we have to define what we mean by hearing, because the Bible does speak of the gospel being presented in in power and clarity. Uh, And I think there are some people who maybe have not heard a spirit-filled presentation of the gospel, and God alone is wise enough to sort out all those folks but the apostle makes this statement. Remember the, Corinth, uh, the Thessalonians had wondered about what was going on in their own personal lives because in the first chapter, they basically say, look, we were being, we're, we're being beat up. We're being persecuted like, uh, like few people have been persecuted. And of course, <laughs> the Bible predicted that during the time of the Great Tribulation, what the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah called the time of Jacob's trouble that tribulation would be at a height. And so Paul said, listen, um, uh, in verse uh, 5 of chapter 1, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. So he reminds them that suffering is a part of the Christian life. And then he goes on to say, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to relieve and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, 
when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So he reminds them that though they are afflicted and persecuted and suffering for the cause of the kingdom, uh, the Bible speaks that we as Christians will suffer. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. It's part of the Christian life, contrary to what some televangelists may uh, communicate to you. Uh, Suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. Uh, The scripture says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But their persecution was so intense, it spawned some questions. Could we be in the tribulation? And so now we request you, chapter 2, verse 1, brethren, with regard to the coming of our our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us as to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And really what happened in that day happens in this day. Sometimes people take current events and they use it as an opportunity and as as a springboard to teach things that the Bible does not teach. So some uh, teacher said, oh, look, you know, we know that there's a great time of tribulation that is coming. We must be in it, and uh, somehow uh, you've you've missed some things. Or some spirit, remember, the Scripture had not yet been completed, and so uh, the Spirit of God would come on individuals and speak through them, and that's why everything was to be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses, as 1 Corinthians 14 indicates. But here he speaks really of a, of a lying spirit that would come, or some message or letter like it came from us. And that's why Paul will underscore in one of his letters that, look, here's my distinguishing mark. If I wrote a letter to you, this is what you'd look for. And so he says, no, this day hasn't come yet. Let no one deceive you, for it will not come this time of the great tribulation unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He says, listen, you can't be in the great tribulation. You're not in the time of Jacob's trouble. Think about it. In the time of Jacob's trouble— The Bible teaches there will be the coming apostasy. Jesus spoke of that. That had already been a well-known sermon, and we call it the Olivet Discourse today because it was given on the Mount of Olives. In Jesus, in, in Matthew 24 and 25, where that sermon is recorded, made a very clear statement about a coming persecution. And he, he makes this statement. He said, all these things are merely the birth pangs of what's going to take place. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away. That's the apostasy, this falling away from the faith. Many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And then, of course, he will say that he who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Endurance is a mark and a sign of true conversion. So he's talking about what is going to happen during the time of the great tribulation period. So Paul says, listen, the the great apostasy hasn't happened yet. Now, I do believe the seeds for the coming apostasy are being sown, even as we speak in this day. Uh, There has been a departure from the Holy Scripture in even evangelical churches all across America. People no longer know their Bibles. They're not being trained in sound doctrine. They're being entertained on Sunday, but not trained and taught from the Holy Scripture. And that sets uh, a church up for weakness. And that sets the body of Christ up for 
for darkness and for a great falling away. Not the true body of Christ, but the professing, but not the possessing. People who say they're Christians but are really not born again because there's only one true church. But, you know, who would have ever thought, who would have ever thought that we would have evangelical presses printing books because they sell so hot that preach heresy? Who would have ever thought that we would have evangelical presses promoting books that, in essence, are extra-revelational, that go beyond the realm of Scripture into dreams and visions and outer body experiences and the like? But that's the day that we live in, and the church is susceptible to such error because they no longer know their Bible. Well, those seeds are being sown for the great apostasy that is going to come. So he says, listen, you know you're not in that day because the apostasy hasn't come. There's always been apostasy, but this is articular, the apostasy. He's talking about that specific falling away from the faith. Not to mention the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. He's called by John the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Uh, He hasn't taken his seat in the temple, displaying himself as being God. So he says, listen, there's a one world ruler coming. He's described by the prophet Daniel, and he's uh, further elucidated in the New Testament by people like Paul and John and others. Uh, He hasn't come, much less he hasn't entered the temple yet, where he commits what the prophet Daniel predicted, what Jesus quoted in the Olivet Discourse, the abomination of desolation, where he goes into the temple and this rebuilt temple that is going to be rebuilt um, probably won't be rebuilt until after the church is taken out. But I, I think probably at the start of the tribulation period, the temple will be rebuilt because we know that this event where he goes in and makes himself out to be God, Jesus said, took place right in the middle of the 70-week prophecy of Daniel, right in the middle of the seven years. In fact, I won't be at all surprised if it's the day they dedicate that rebuilt temple. And by the way, the, the plans are there in Israel today for a new temple to be built. All the priestly garments have been manufactured and made. All of the temple furniture has been reconstructed. Uh, there's a group of Orthodox Jews who are have a school that will train men in the sacrificial system because they believe without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And they take the Bible at its plain face value that uh, unlike most Jews in our world today who uh, spiritualize that to say, well, you just need to be a sacrificial kind of person. They believe the temple needs to be reconstructed. It's going to happen. And when that happens, um, during that time period, the Bible speaks of this one who is coming, who is going to be slain by the Lord Jesus, just by the appearance of his coming. And this one, this Antichrist in verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians 2, his coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all powers and signs and false wonders. Isn't that interesting? He's anti-Christ. He comes in the place of Christ. He comes instead of Christ. And Messiah came with signs, powers, and miracles. This one comes with signs, signs, powers, and false miracles or false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness. For those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved. So there are people today, I witnessed to a man last night and I was talking to him about the urgency of his need to respond to Jesus Christ. 
that he won't have forever, that he needs to call upon the name of the Lord. We were sitting in traffic uh, for hours last night on an I-95 in a car wreck, and so it was a divine appointment that God gave me. He had no place to go, and I had no place to go except to wait when they would reopen 95 going south. And I said, there's an urgency. Listen, he heard the plan of salvation last night. He heard it clearly. He heard it from a spirit-filled Christian. If the rapture took place tonight, he would not become a believer tomorrow. Why? Because he heard the gospel plainly. And not to respond is to respond. Listen, um, you're free to choose, but you're free not to choose. God gave you a free will, so you're free to choose. But you're free not to choose in the sense that if you don't choose, you've made a choice. There's no such thing as neutrality. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. You either gather or you scatter. You either confess me before men or you don't. There's no room for neutrality. So you're you're free to choose. You're free not to choose. But nor are you free to escape the consequences of your choices. And people in our day who have heard the plan of salvation and clarity and empower, who do nothing with it, they've made a choice. And so for this reason, the Bible says, God will send on them a deluding influence. So they might believe what is false. There will be a judgment that will come. Some guy who's listening to me today who says, well, if all this rapture stuff happens and, you know, millions of Christians are gone and this one world government begins to unfold and, you know, and Israel becomes the center of the whole world and all that's going to happen. And, uh, man, I'll get right with God. No, you won't because God will judge you. He will send the deluding influence of the Antichrist. And that's the great apostasy that's going to happen. That will be the genesis of it. Um, People will give their allegiance to a false Messiah. Anyway, great question. I spent a lot of time on it, but it's an important one. Let's go to our next caller. I think someone's waiting on the air live. Indeed they are. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Hey, Dr. Brogan. Good morning. Thanks for calling today. Yeah, just to give a follow-up on what you're talking about, um, you can explain Reformed theology from the point of Calvinism, where the part says you can't resist God or reject God. When Stephen stood up and declared, you stiff neck, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. And when Paul began to preach to Agrippa, um, I don't know the Greek word in there when he, when Agrippa made the word uh, that you almost persuaded me. I don't want to take that out of context, but are those on similar lines? Okay, it's a great question, and it's really a two-sided question and a two-sided answer. And some people lean to one side to the exclusion of the other, both Arminians and Calvinists. And I and I and I think both can be clearly out of balance. Is it possible to resist? the work of God, the Holy Spirit in your life. Absolutely. Um, the verse that you just referenced that I was talking about this past Sunday uh, from Acts chapter 7, um, very clearly Stephen, he gives one of the most powerful sermons in all the Bible. In fact, sometimes people say, well, I want to understand the highlights of the Old Testament. How do I get a grip on the highlights of the Old Testament? Some of the non-negotiables, it's such a big book. Uh, you know, 39 books. How, wh- where do I start? I said, well, look, if you want to get the highlights, you might study Acts 7. I have a whole sermon on it in our Acts series. And what does he do? He goes through the highlights of the whole Old Testament. Uh, he knew his Bible. And as he does that, uh, he demonstrates, really improves that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. 
and they only got angry at him. Uh, they, they, they sneered at him. Uh, they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed upon him with one impulse. Uh, I mean, they, they, they just, they weren't too, uh, too thrilled with, with, with this sermon. And he had just said, you men who are stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. So yes, people can resist God, the Holy Spirit. In John 12, Jesus did some amazing miracles. Um, Let me just read uh, a little section uh, from John chapter 12. In, In John 12, verse 35, Jesus said, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. Is he playing with them? You know, uh, is he is he asking them, this multitude of people, to do something that's impossible for them to do? No, he's not playing with them. It's a sincere invitation that he's giving the multitude. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light, in order that you might be converted. But they were closing their eyes to the truth. These things Jesus spoke and departed and hid himself. But though he had performed so many signs, so many attesting miracles, there was different words in the Greek New Testament for a miracle. We translate them with different English words to try to bring out a a, a different nuance. There's the word dunamis. We get our word in English, ultimately dynamite. It speaks of the power of a miracle. And there is a, another word that's used here, semeon, and it means basically a miracle with a message. Though these miracles that had an attesting message to them that they should have got, though he'd performed many, yet they were not believing in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause, for what cause? Because he had given them revelation And they would not believe in him. For this cause, they could not believe in him. Because they would not, they could not. And again, it's a fulfillment of what God predicted would happen. Because God has foreknowledge. He, the Lord, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. So, this is important. A person has a decision to make. Again, there's no such thing as neutrality. Not to decide is to decide. And uh, Jesus is exhorting these who had not decided. Make a decision because if you don't, the light that God is giving you, because remember, the initiative always begins with God. It doesn't begin with dead people. It begins with God. You, you can't take any glory in your salvation like a, you were Mr intellectual. And so you started reading books on apologetics and you figured out on your own that you needed Jesus as Savior. And with your little puny mind, you realized that the Bible was true and all that. Listen, the only reason you realized and you even sought and you even desired to study and look at those things is because God initiated with you. Because people who are dead in trespasses and sins, what's true in the spiritual realm is true in the physical realm and vice versa. Dead people have no capacity to respond. That's why when God works, respond. And really what you see here in minuscule form is an illustration of what you're going to see in a broad picture, what we just looked at in 2 Thessalonians 2. 
what God does individually today. He's going to do it in a wholesale way during the time of the great tribulation. And so Jesus in the um, parable of uh, the sower in Luke 8, he makes a fascinating statement in Luke 8 and in verse um, 13. And those on the, uh, well, let me back it up. Verse 12, and those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes, get this now, the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. There's an urgency. Jesus is giving in the parable of the sower different reasons why people don't respond and why some people do respond. And in the first three soils, he's giving an explanation as to why people don't respond. By the way, this parable is found in Matthew 13. We looked at earlier this morning at Matthew 12. What's the key to understanding Matthew 13? Matthew 12, the kingdom parables of Matthew 13, and there's a whole series of them, are given in light of Matthew 12, in light of Israel's rejection of her Messiah. And so he says, listen, some people, the devil is given permission to take the word out of their heart. How does he do it? Well, because of their lack of response, he, he offers them something else. And they grab hold of it. And then the very chilling words that they may not believe and be saved. So you can resist, but so you must respond. But on the other hand, you can't resist. There is a truth to what the Calvinist says in terms of irresistible grace. And we speak of spoke of that last Sunday in Romans 8. There is an unbroken chain of salvation. And we looked at the fact that there's a general call that God gives that goes out to the ends of the earth, but then there's an internal effectual call that uh, takes place in the heart when someone responds to that general call. And so after he says that God works all things together for good, he, he says for those whom God pre, whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of a son. And we'll talk about this when we come to Romans 8, that there's a distinction in the Bible between the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination. Now, most Calvinists make that distinction. Most non-Calvinists don't, and they group it all together. But there is a distinction. John Calvin said election and predestination is not the same, and he was right in that. Predestination is that process by which God conforms you to the image of his son. And so then he goes on, and those whom he predestined, these he called, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified. There's five links in that change that are unbroken. And so um, those whom he called, who experienced that internal effectual call, there comes a time in a person's life because of their free will response, not coerced, by God, but because of their free will response, a response that was brought about because of the initiation of God, because remember, they were dead, but because of their free will, there was a hook that was put in their heart because of a decision they made, and God finished what he began, even to the point to describe glorified here in a past tense. God says, not will be glorified, but glorified. In God's eyes, I'm already glorified positionally. Someday I will know it experientially. So you can emphasize one side of the coin to the other. You can emphasize the Arminian side that would say, okay, man is free. Man can respond to the work of the Holy Spirit on his own, and he can resist the Holy Spirit on his own. No, he can't. 
God has to be the first mover, and the Arminian tends to ignore that. The Calvinist goes to the other end of the spectrum, where he would say, yes, you said as an act of your free will, yes to God, but only because God in eternity past first said yes to you, and he said yes to a select few. And that God doesn't initiate with all in the truest sense in that they would have an opportunity to respond. And so I think both are in error. I'm not an Arminian. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm a Calminian. I think there's truth in both courts, and we need to think our way through it carefully. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. In fact, uh, bring up for me a very special event that's coming very soon here to the Low Country. Pastors of the Low Country and Coastal Empire, you're invited to lunch with Pastor Tony Evans Friday, April 27th at 1130 at the Parish Church of St. Helena. Dr. Evans is senior pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Church in Dallas and president and founder of The Urban Alternative, heard weekdays at noon on this station. He'll share a timely message of hope and encouragement specifically aimed at those who shepherd congregations. Seating is limited, so you must request an invitation online at cbcofbuford.org and must be submitted by Monday, April 2nd. Men of the Low Country who are pastors, we're inviting you to a very special uh, event with Dr. Evans uh, in conjunction with uh, another church here in town, the Parish Church of St. Helena, together with Community Bible Church. We're having Dr. Evans come for two nights to preach on Thursday and Friday night, April 27th and 28th, and on Friday, or 26th and the 27th, and on Friday the 27th at noon, for pastors, we have a very special luncheon. Um, and so you'll need to have a reservation. You'll need to have a ticket to get in. Seating is limited to 250. Uh, you may be listening to me in Savannah. You may be a pastor up in Walterboro. Uh, but if you're listening, you'd like to come, go online uh, to org. You can download the application uh, fill it out to secure your spot at that luncheon that's coming up. A very powerful time uh, to be with this man of God. All right, Rick, let's go to our next question. All right, our next question comes from Yvonne in East Providence, Rhode Island. She writes, after Jesus was baptized by John, God sent a white dove to descend on Jesus, and God spoke that Jesus is his son, and he was pleased with him. Do you think John the Baptist heard God speak to Jesus? And if so, why in Matthew eleven two? Did John send his disciples to question Jesus? Well, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, the baptism of John is uh, recorded in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's referenced in John. So, uh, But in terms of the actual baptism, it's recorded just in the synoptics. So let me uh, go here to Matthew uh, chapter 3. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he... And if you have the New American Standard with marginal notes, you will see that it is a small letter H. Uh, understand capital letters are um, not definitively, um, you know, given in, in the Old Testament. And this is what I mean by that. There are some Greek manuscripts that are written in all capitals. 
Uh, there are some Greek manuscripts that are written in all small letters and nothing in between. So the interpreter, the translator, has to make a translation decision. And so the translators of, of Matthew, beginning with the American Standard, really even before, in fact, I don't know how the ESV reads, if it's a small letter H or not. In, in Matthew 1, I would be curious just to see how it, it reads. Let me just turn there. I got an ESV Bible here in front of me. Um, but in Matthew uh, 3 and uh, here in verse 15. So if you look in the margin, by the way, uh, it will give you an alternative or capital he. So the uh, the question becomes, is it uh, he singular? But here, I, I forgot in the ESV, they don't capitalize anyway, the pronouns anyway. So you really, you don't have that advantage that they put all the lower uh, all the pronouns in lowercase, even pronouns that clearly, undisputably refer to God. So there's a point of debate there. Is this he, John, that heard, or he, Jesus, who heard? Um, I think it's inconsequential. Let me keep reading. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him, and behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my be- beloved Son. <laughs> in whom I am well pleased. Um, When you read Mark's account, let me just read Mark 1, uh, 9 through 11. And I'll read all three accounts. I think it's worth the time. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, he capital, and the spirit like a dove descending on him and a voice coming out of the heavens You are my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. By the way, beloved here is the same word that God uses to describe his people in passages like Romans 1 that we studied last Sunday. Uh, He there clearly, indisputably, is a pronoun that um, uh, it goes back to the Lord Jesus. So no debate on that one. So some would say in Matthew, John heard. And undisputably in Mark, because of the way the Greek New Testament is constructed, that that Jesus heard. And so they would conclude, well, then both heard. Then let me read another passage in Luke 3 and verse 21. Luke 3 and verse 21. Now it came about when all the people were being baptized that Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And again, here, it doesn't say who does the hearing. Now, with that said, let me read John's account in John 1, uh, 31, if I remember, if I read the cross reference right. Yeah, here's John. Again, he's not recording the baptism of Jesus, but he's referencing what happened. Um, when, when he had baptized him. And so he said, and I did not recognize him. He's looking back. I did not recognize him, John one thirty one. but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness saying, I have beheld the spirit. So now John says, I saw the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven. Now in one text, clearly Jesus saw the spirit descending upon him. Uh, so probably everything that Jesus saw and heard, John ha- heard and saw. And so I think you, you could argue that. But again, lay that aside for a second. And I, John, bore witness saying, I have beheld the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven. And he remained upon him and I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, 
he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So he certainly had testimony. God the Father had told him in advance that there would come a time when the Spirit of God, the anointing, uh, outward symbolic anointing of Jesus as the true Messiah would be seen at the baptism. So John knew that. So the, the, the challenge comes later on in his ministry in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, John only ministers for approximately uh, a year in the three-year ministry, public ministry of Jesus Christ. And if you remember, uh, he became less and Christ became more prevalent. And it came about, it says, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent words by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? I mean, what a, what a question, what an amazing question that this great man of God would ask. And Jesus said, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. And as they were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? Uh, that, 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 that wasn't John. He, he wasn't some, you know, uh, reed, so to speak, that could be bent one way or the other based on the political climate. He was a man with a spiritually, a, a spine made out of spiritual steel. He didn't bend. He didn't care what people thought. Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out and see? A, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who, who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. You know, he didn't come like maybe you think the forerunner of Messiah should have come. But why did you go out to, to see a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before me. That's a prophecy that is given in two passages in the Old Testament. Here he's quoting the prophet Malachi, the third chapter directly, but it's also given in Isaiah 40 of the forerunner of Messiah. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So the Lord unmistakably makes it clear that John was a man of God worth following, worth emulating, whom you're going to meet in heaven. But why is it that John had doubts? He didn't have doubts over what God had promised in the Old Testament, that Messiah would come, be dead, buried, and raised on the third day. That was found in the Old Testament scriptures. John knew that, and he knew that he was the forerunner who would preach about that one who would come in his lifetime. But remember, in the Old Testament, there are two comings of Messiah that are pictured. There is his first coming when he comes as a suffering servant, where he will um, be pierced through for our iniquities. But then there is another coming when he will not come as a, a suffering servant, 
but he will come as a reigning king, a sovereign king where he will crush the nations of the world with a rod of iron. And so very often in the Old Testament, you will actually see uh, both pictures given in a single section of scripture. So he says, for instance, uh, in Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah uh, 9, 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government, the government will rest upon his shoulders. When on earth did Jesus see the government resting on his shoulders? He didn't, but that is a promise that God gives of the reign of Messiah. Hadn't happened yet. Uh, Let me take you a little bit later to Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach, to bring about good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Interestingly, remember that occasion when Jesus is in the, his hometown of Nazareth, and um, they recognize he's a rabbi, and so they hand the scroll um, of the prophet Isaiah to him. And he goes to this exact section. It's recorded in, in Luke chapter 4 when he, he goes into the synagogue and, and they hand him the prophet's scroll and he speaks and he reads that portion of scripture. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Remember, it's, it's a scroll. It's a, literally the scroll of the book. In fact, in the... Um, annotated note. It says scroll. It's Biblia, Um, but that could refer to a scroll or what we would consider today to be a book. And he found the place where it was written. So he he obviously knew the scroll well. Remember, Isaiah is a long book. In fact, the prophet Isaiah all by itself is longer than all 12 minor prophets put together. Minor or major prophets, a designation given from the fourth century AD on, Uh, not saying that some are more important than others, but only speaking of the length, maybe a poor designation for our day, but nonetheless one that is stuck. So Isaiah is longer than all 12 shorter prophets of the Old Testament put together. And so Jesus obviously knows this scroll well. Listen, you don't have chapter and verse divisions. Those aren't done till nearly a millennium after the church has been born. You don't have chapter and verse divisions. How did you find a passage? Well, you know, maybe it's a 58 turns of the scroll. He knew the scroll really, really well. So he found the place in the scroll. And then he reads this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are downtrodden to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, period. He stops right in the middle of a Hebrew verse. Let me read it back in Isaiah 61 too. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus stops right there. The rest of the verse says, in the the rest of the sentence in Hebrew, again, no, no verse distinctions yet. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And then he goes on and he, he speaks about, about a different side of Messiah that has not yet been fulfilled. And he's going to spend Isaiah 62, 63, 64, 65, and 66 describing this great, magnificent reign of Messiah where he will rule with a, a rod of iron, where the nations of the world will, will be put under his feet. That never happened, but it's going to happen. 
So you got both pictures of Messiah and very often found in the same verse of Scripture. And I could cite numerous illustrations for you. So it's not by accident that Jesus stopped where he did because he knew that the rest of that prophecy would be fulfilled later on in his life. But what he read up till that point in Luke 4, he said, this today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They, they, they knew the claim he was making. It was an incredible claim that he was indeed the promised Messiah of Israel. So John sees these two pictures of Messiah. Um, and so probably what John thought was that Messiah would, would, would suffer, but he would also rule. And he hadn't put into his mind the order of it yet. Remember the Old Testament prophets when Peter describes them. Peter makes a a wonderful statement that um, speaks a whole lot about how inspired some of these men of the Old Testament were when they when they wrote the uh, when they wrote the Holy Scripture. And um, he he says we don't follow cleverly um, we don't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we're eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as was made to him uh, by the majestic glory. And this is what we read already in the Gospels. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard the utterance that he made from heaven. And so we have a more prophetic we have, and so we have the prophetic word made more sure. So he's, he's speaking of this prophetic word that is more powerful written that they have. And then earlier in this chapter, he describes these men who wrote it, men who were moved by the spirit of God. Uh, they, they were moved along by the spirit of God um, in their writing of scripture. Now, let me go back to first Peter one for just a second. I want to read one other verse. I want you to put this together in your mind. In first Peter one ten, he says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Again, two pictures of Messiah. He will die on Mount Calvary. He will die as a suffering servant, but there will be glory to follow. There will be a glorious sovereign reign of Messiah, and both pictures are given. But he's saying these men whom God inspired were so inspired that as they wrote the scriptures, they had to go back and make careful search. And look, this is what God gave us to write. Now we've got to go back and study it to, to, to try to understand what it means. Now, if that was true of the actual authors of some of the Old Testament scriptures, it was certainly true of John. So John's wondering, hey, if you're Messiah, I don't want to be one responsible for announcing the wrong person. Why am I in prison? What am I doing here if you're the sovereign Lord? And so Jesus just goes back and he just says, go back and quote this scripture to him. And John, who had been in prison, who didn't even have the opportunity to see a lot of the attesting miracles. And Jesus highlights some of the specific miracles that would be unique to the Messiah. The blind would see, the deaf would hear, the lame would walk. And that's all John needs. And um, he would have responded in faith. Great question. Uh, I think we got a live caller. Let's go right to him. Okay. Uh, Actually, they they decided to hang up. Uh, I didn't think we had quite enough time, but we do have time for this quick one. 
a listener gets an email from a ministry called Faith Life Church in Ohio, and the pastor is Gary Kessie, and it seems this might be a prosperity ministry. This caller would like to know if you have ever heard of this ministry and its mission. No, I haven't. Don't know anything about him. No, I have an associate pastor. Our associate pastor, Dr. Bennett, is from Ohio. He probably has, so I suppose I could ask him. Um, but all I would need to do would be to go to their doctrinal statement, and I could tell you in two minutes where this guy is coming from most of the time. Sometimes these guys will put up an evangelical doctrinal statement, and it's meaningless. It's just like the PCUSA. Uh, their historical doctrinal statement is evangelical. Why? Because they have evangelical roots, but they're an apostate denomination in our day. Uh, they just two weeks ago officially, finally, and forever sanctioned homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle. So you can have an orthodox doctrinal statement and not necessarily ascribe to it. But all you have to do is listen to a sermon or so, and you'll know whether or not this guy is on target, whether he's solid whether he's reflecting uh, a true biblical worldview. Uh, there's so much garbage out there that is ear-tickling, um, that makes people wealthy. It will grow huge churches and fill pews. I mean, who wants to be persecuted? Who wants to be sick? Who wants to have difficult times? Who wants to be poor? Uh, everybody wants to be healthy and wealthy and demon-free, and they, they make promises, some of which cannot be kept. And um, so here it is. We believe we can overcome every negative circumstance, including financial lack, sickness, heartbreak, fear, and marital problems. Some of that's true, but not all of it. You can overcome every negative circumstance, including financial lack. Tell me about it, will you? Heartbreak? How can you escape heartbreak in this world? Sickness? And that's, that's just wrong. So here, we, again, just here's the doctrinal statement. Um, they've got a warped view, too, of how the Holy Spirit works in their life, as I can see here, as they're defining the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not consistent with the way the New Testament defines it. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're, they're way off. They're, they're in, it looks like it's, um, I don't know if that's a husband-wife team in terms of, uh, I see her picture, and I don't know if he's the pastor, and she's the pastorette. Uh, probably is. That's usually the way it is in most of these uh, prosperity gospel messages. And if you listen to them, they preach about Jesus, they preach about the Spirit. But remember, Paul said, there's some who will preach another Jesus, another Spirit, and another gospel. So... Learn your Bible so you can know the difference. We're out of time for today. Good to be with you today. God bless you. And tomorrow evening, you don't want to miss what we're going to bring up on the next spot. God bless you and have a great day.